This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. I don't think I can even go a single day without somebody talking about climate change and how it's affecting the food that we're eating, the quality of the food, the quality of the seafood how it's affecting tides, the water quality, everything is being affected. I think that for the first time that I can remember, climate change is a daily part of conversation. Climate change, those two words are becoming more present every day, even to those of us who prefer the peace and quiet of a morning on the water or the excitement of a bugle piercing crisp fall air. But we begin to notice that things are a bit off. When wildfires still rage during rifle season, or western rivers have permanent afternoon fishing closures every summer, or when more frequent and more powerful hurricanes continue to ravage waterfowl paradise in the southeast, something just ain't right, and we know it. Our sporting traditions are threatened, threatened in a way we can't ignore, threatened in a way that could severely alter our way of life. So, shall we sit and watch our hunt slide away? Our family fishing trips deteriorate into a lesser version of the glory days, and our cherished Octobers and Novembers drift into something we can only reminisce about? That's really not an option. Our option is to get active, use our knowledge, and tell our stories. Tell the world that our sporting lives are worth saving, and that there's plenty left worth fighting for. We start now. We start by telling our stories. This is Vanishing Seasons, Climate Chronicles from the Field. The Pacific Ocean is the largest ocean on Earth at more than 68 million square miles. And as Jimmy Buffett says, it holds the treasures few have ever seen. But some people get a good look over a lifetime of intimate connection and a culture that's inexplicably linked to the ocean. Stevie Parsons has had such a life. In her 67 years, she has lived in her native Hawaii and in California and Oregon. 
Over her lifetime, she has watched as changes have come to both her culture and to the land and sea that have served as the backbone for her sustenance and as the fuel to engage in conservation. I wanted to talk to you about a few things. You've got experiences in a few different areas and have experienced climate change from a lot of different perspectives. So we're going to take this episode in a couple of different parts, but let's just start with who you are and where you grew up. You know, a bit of your personal story of early life in Hawaii. Um, um, my name is Stevie Kapanui Parsons. I am a Kanaka Maoli, which is a native Hawaiian. I have I was born and raised in Hawaii um, as a native Hawaiian. Conservation values. We grow up being very, very close to the land. Hawaiians believe that the land sustains us, and therefore we have a responsibility to sustain the land. So we grow up with values of love of the land, take care of the land. The land sustains you, take only what you need, and always, always give back. So hunters, for example, in Hawaii, if you kill um, a pig or uh, a deer in the forest, you will go back to that area that you killed it and you will plant something. You took food from the land in that area. You must replace it. You must give something back. So that is the cultural value that is instilled in us from the time we're born. Talk about your personal hunting and fishing story. Just what are your favorite species to hunt and fish for? And, you know, what do you like about it? And how, how did you get engaged in it? In my traditional Hawaiian culture, women generally mended fishing nets. They generally um, harvested seaweed and shellfish. Uh, the men did all the hunting. They did all the fishing. They also did all the cooking. So that was basically the culture I was raised with. 11 years ago, when I moved to Oregon, I saw a lot of women fishing and hunting. And for me, it was a freeing experience. It was, why can't I bring the best of my Hawaiian culture and also embrace the culture of Oregon? And then I started fishing. So I, I became interested in salmon fishing because everyone said, a neighbor once said to me, uh, you're new here. If you don't catch a salmon, if you don't go salmon fishing and catch a salmon, within your first five years, we're going to throw you back to where you came. And we laughed. But I decided I wanted to fish salmon. And so I started fishing salmon. And along with salmon came uh, steelhead, came halibut, came lingod, came sea bass. And then it grew into hunting. If I'm fishing, why not also hunt? And so it began hunting for deer, for elk. Hawaii is experiencing climate change in many of the same ways as other parts of the country, such as changing rainfall patterns, more intense storms, drought, rising sea levels, and changing ocean chemistry. These changes are unique in Hawaii, however, due to its location in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Food and other resources are already more expensive than most of the country, so the ability to harvest wild foods plays an important role in Hawaiian life, particularly for indigenous communities who have relied on these food sources for thousands of years. A couple examples of these food sources being detrimentally affected are seaweed and shellfish. 
Shellfish in particular are being affected due to the reduction in carbonate from greater acidity in ocean waters. As climate change has created more acidic ocean conditions, it has already and will increasingly become even more difficult for these animals to build their shells. Warming temperatures have also contributed to the bleaching and degradation of coral reefs. These impacts alter fragile ocean food webs and have far-reaching consequences for marine life and for both commercial and recreational anglers. Tell me, I mean, you grew up very connected to the landscape, to the sea, to the foods of the sea. Talk about that. Talk about your, you know, your wild harvesting and how your family and your community Uh, was connected to the land and the sea when you grew up. Okay. Well, as a youngster, um, we would go to the ocean. I mean, Hawaii... We're surrounded by the ocean. We have coastline. I think we have over 700 miles of coastline. uh, coastline. So we went to the sea. We would go to the sea on the weekends, and we would collect seaweed. And there's several kinds. We call it in Hawaii, all seaweed is called limu. And then the word that follows it describes what the color is and what type it is. But we would go to the ocean and collect Limu. Limu is a seaweed that would just um, just come up in the waves in the ocean. So you didn't even have to go out to the rocks. It would just come in through the waves. It was a gift. It was like the ocean was giving you something for just, just for showing up. All you had to do is show up and you got this free gift that the ocean was giving you. So we would go there. And before we even got there, Within a few miles of the ocean, you could smell the seaweed. It just opened up your senses. You could smell it in your nostrils. You just, as a child, you became alive. You knew you were going to play in the water. You were going to harvest seaweed. And then after you harvested the seaweed, there were seashells that you could harvest. We harvested a little black shell that was on the rocks that we called pipipi. And we would take that home. We would uh, put it in a pot with some hot water and some uh, salt. And then that evening, we would eat our seaweed and we would eat our little peepees. We all had um, little safety pins that our parents gave us. And you put, you'd open it up and put the the pointy end in the seashell and pop out your seashell and eat it. Pop it in your mouth. And so it was like. It was just a freebie. It was something special for the weekend. It was something that really meant something culturally as well. It wasn't just nourishing for your body, but for your soul. When do you think the first time it was that you noticed climate change? I noticed things happening with the seaweed uh, probably in my... Okay, I was harvesting seaweed from my elementary school years. And I think it was in high school that I noticed that the seaweed was becoming less plentiful. And it wasn't until I would say the 1980s that it it began to really hit home because suddenly Limu wasn't always there on the beach. We couldn't always find the shells that we used to eat. Um, Things started to change. Fish were not as plentiful. 
My brothers weren't bringing home the same amount of fish and the same kind of fish that they had. So you notice things just began to change a little at a time, but they did change. The water started changing. The temperature of the water started changing. As a kid, you notice because you're always in, in Hawaii, you're always in the water, you're always swimming, playing in the water. And I noticed the water started actually getting warmer. It felt like it was warmer. I, it didn't take as long to adjust to the water as it did when I was a kid. When I go back home and I visit, I don't think I can even go a single day without somebody talking about climate change and how it's affecting the food that we're eating, the, the quality of the food, the quality of the seafood, how it's affecting tides, how the tides are affecting floods, the water quality, everything is being affected. I think that for the first time that I can remember, climate change is a daily part of conversation. And it is a, a very, very big part of the Native Hawaiian community. Big eye tuna are a staple of Hawaiian offshore fisheries and for Hawaiian diets. These fish are very sensitive to temperatures for carrying out their life cycles. They dive deep to specific areas in the water column where temperatures are between 50 and 60 degrees to find their food, and then return to near the surface to warm up and regain strength before going on another dive. Rising ocean temperatures are altering their patterns and making it a necessity to dive deeper to obtain their prey. This scenario is making it more difficult to catch big-eyed tuna, reducing their body weights and reducing their numbers. Estimates predict 25% less tuna will be caught under current climate change trends. How will the ocean food webs respond to these changes? And what will it mean for Hawaiians and others that rely on these typically abundant fish? If you look into the literature about Hawaii, one of the things you notice when they talk about climate change is the different uh, behavior and the abundance of big-eyed tuna and how it's such a staple for a lot of the Pacific fisheries, commercial fisheries, some of the traditional cultures. Did your family have any experience with big-eyed tuna? Well, my brothers um, would bring home a lot of it. It was plentiful. And when they couldn't go out fishing, we would go to the docks in Hilo and you could get them off of the boats. They it was available. It was very inexpensive, you know, $2 a pound. Um, and it was just plentiful. But again, it started to change. I would say the big tuna, big eye tuna started to change in the late 80s and 90s. They started becoming less plentiful. It began, it began to be a really special thing to be able to find them and eat them, not something that was plentiful. And abundant. The Pacific Ocean near Hawaii isn't the only part of the ocean that is seeing climate-driven changes. In fact, changes are occurring across the globe. Stevie has observed additional climate change impacts since moving to Oregon, where she has spent the past dozen years. Upon arriving in Oregon, Stevie took up fishing and began hunting for elk. These pursuits offered even more insights into the scope and scale of climate change particularly as it relates to fisheries. So, you know, you talked about this a little bit. Uh, you talked about it a lot, actually. You know, as a young child, you weren't really allowed to hunt or fish. And so as that, as that transformation took place, you moved to Oregon, you started hunting fishing. 
talk about that experience, how that felt. What did, what did you, how did that connect you to the land where you moved to? Catching my first salmon was an incredible experience. First of all, because I, I had never fished before. So to go from no fishing to catching salmon was, it really truly was a life-changing experience. I didn't know how to cast. I did not know how to do things. I didn't know how to cast. I had attended a couple of free um, seminars on how to catch salmon. I took notes. I read the books. And I, I talked to um, the fishing guides about what equipment to get. I went out in the field expecting and being naive about this, but expecting to be able to catch a salmon. And everyone, the boys around me were laughing at me. They all looked at me like I was crazy because here was this woman who clearly knew nothing about fishing. Forget about salmon, knew nothing about fishing. And she was casting and she knew nothing about how to cast. She knew nothing about anything. And they laughed. I mean, they even fell down laughing, seriously, until I reeled my first salmon in. And it was, I think it was luck. And I, I really also feel it was a connection with the land. I felt really connected. Going out there, I felt connected to the water. Yes, it was Oregon, but I've always been connected to the water. I'm Native Hawaiian. It doesn't matter what, where the water is. We're connected to the water. The water is such a big part of us. So I already felt connected to the water. And the river, I've been connected to the rivers. We're connected to the rocks. I looked at the rocks. I could pick up the rocks. And I felt these rocks are a little different than Hawaii, but there's still rocks on the planet Earth. And I belong to the land. So these are my rocks. It doesn't matter that it's Oregon. So even though it was a new place and fishing was a new experience, I felt really at home there. I felt it was a spiritual experience. It was a feeling of absolute inner quiet and feeling connected. I could hear the birds. I could hear the water going by. And when I got that salmon, when he bit, I felt him bite. And then, of course, your adrenaline starts pumping. And I'm thinking, I've never reeled in a fish before. How am I going to do this? And this is a big one. And so then I started reeling. And it took some time also because I didn't have a net. I had not thought of a net. I didn't expect, I guess, to catch a fish. And so then it began, you begin to think. And I thought, okay, I've got to reel this in. I'm going to back up on the rocks. And again, there's this moment of panic. What do I do? But I think being so connected, it's the native part of you that says you already know what to do. Don't think. Don't think. Just let your instincts take over. When you start thinking, that's when you make mistakes. That's when you start overthinking or doing the wrong thing. Just relax. In Hawaii, we would say, take it easy, sister. Just relax. Bring that bugger in. You know how to do it. And that's really what went through my mind. And it was like, I'm, I could do this in Hawaii. I'm doing this in Oregon, but it still feels like Hawaii. I can do this. And it just happened. 
The Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife has taken a key leadership role with regard to responding to and addressing climate change. In 2020, the department adopted a climate and ocean change policy, the first of its kind in the nation. The policy provides a framework for evaluating and adopting practices for managing Oregon's fish, wildlife, and their habitats in the face of climate change. These practices aim to minimize impacts and protect sensitive resources and address things like fish harvest and sustaining their four species of salmonids. There is also a Council on Ocean Acidification and Hypoxia in Oregon, of which the Game and Fish Department serves as co-chair. Hypoxia is the depletion of oxygen from living tissue. Nearly all living organisms need ample oxygen to survive. Warming waters, pollutants, and changing ocean currents caused by climate change promote and usher in acidic and low oxygen waters that create tough conditions for sea life. These conditions also mean that fish that thrive in cooler waters must move farther north and that warmer water species are now being seen in Oregon's typically cooler waters. While Oregon is doing an admirable job of beginning to address the impacts, ocean conditions are changing rapidly, and anglers in particular are seeing the changes with their own eyes. So then you, you, you moved, you spent some time in California, and you've lived in Oregon for the past you know, dozen or so years, and you've learned and experienced you know, cl- the climate, and, and now you're a hunter and an angler. And, and, you know, talk about what kind of fishing and hunting you do in Oregon and how that's connected you to a new landscape. Moving to Oregon and fishing in the ocean and the streams, climate change has really sped up. Or at least maybe I am more aware of it now because I'm actually fishing a lot and hunting a lot. So fishing, for example, the bottom fish bottom fishing, which was like, you could go out, you could, in your boat, it's in the ocean, you could go out, maybe take a half hour to get to your spot. And then you'd be done fishing, you'd limit out in five minutes or 10 minutes, and then come back. Um, You'd get sea bass, uh, gray, gray gray bass, blue bass, beautiful fish, huge, really delicious, fast, easy. Now, you may spend all day getting half of the fish that you got before that was so easy. You, with lingcod, lingcod that was so plentiful, again, now is, you'll get lingcod, but they're going to be much smaller. They're not going to be as fat. They're going to be smaller, and it's going to take you longer. It's more a matter of Really, you really have to know where to go for them to get them. And they used to be everywhere. So that's also changed. What about some of the anomalies the fishermen and women are seeing up there? There's, I know there's some unique species that have entered Oregon's waters that aren't typically found there. Can you talk about some of those? Yes. It is crazy. It's crazy here because going out of Iwako. Um, I tuna fish as well. So when I tuna fish, I go out of Iwako, which is Washington. It's a pier in Washington. It's on the other side of Astoria. And people are coming up with their, they're catching mahi-mahi. They're catching tropical species. They're catching mahi-mahi. They're catching bluefin tuna. Um, There's 
a lot of sharks being caught. Sharks that normally don't live in Oregon that are being caught. And then we also have, um, there is a, um, the blooms brought, there is a, a creature that is called a pyrosome. And a pyrosome is kind of like the Borg of the sea. It looks like a giant windsock. And it floats through the ocean and it eats all of the plankton and krill. So that has appeared here. That I think appeared in the blob, what, five years ago. That's the first time it came to Oregon. We have sunfish here. We have fish here that you would only see in Hawaii. And they're getting, they're more and more a daily occurrence. You can see sunfish whenever you go out in the ocean. They're everywhere. You wouldn't have them normally in Oregon. So there's a really crazy thing that's happening with the water here. Wow, so a lot of these changes you're talking about seeing just, I mean, even in the relatively short time that you've been in Oregon. That's what's scary, is I haven't been here long, and yet I see these changes. During the buoy 10 season on the Columbia River, we'd be, we're all on boats, everyone's on a boat, Columbia River's really huge, and you'd see schools of anchovies. It was so exciting because you'd be on the boat and suddenly the water around you would just burst into bubbles and bubbles and, and just life where you knew that there were anchovies everywhere. You'd be surrounded by anchovies, schools of them. And where if you put a net on, you could have filled your net easily. That doesn't ha- that hasn't happened in the last two years. Two years now, I have not seen anchovies in the in the ocean. Uh, I mean, in the rivers. Whereas before, they'd be everywhere. You, we would laugh. We it would be great because you'd see the anchovies coming in, schools of anchovies, and with the anchovies, as soon as they hit. Shortly after, you'd see everyone's rods go down because the salmon were following the anchovies and they'd start hitting the rods and you could watch the boats in the distance. You could see that the salmon were moving, even though you couldn't see them because you'd see rods start going off and you'd go, get ready, it's going to hit us soon because it would just start to move. Every two years, Oregon releases a climate change assessment as mandated by their state legislature. The latest version was released in January of 2021. It said and updated many things we already know, that Oregon is getting hotter, both the water and the air, snow is melting sooner, precipitation patterns are changing, and drought is worsening. The same can be said for Hawaii, with hotter and more acidic, less oxygenated oceans, less freshwater availability, and changing ocean currents. Again, things we already know. The science is in. Now it's just a matter of what we do about it. If hunters and anglers want to continue to enjoy our treasured resources, we need to incite the changes we want to see. We can do that by promoting habitat connectivity and restoration, using less energy and reducing our emissions, and most importantly, by advocating for these actions whenever they arise in our legislatures, at the voting booth, 
or by administrative policy. Oregon and Hawaii are both unique, amazing places that have evolved for millennia to support a fantastic array of fish and wildlife. The sporting community is lucky to be able to utilize the incredible resources these lands and waters provide. And it's our obligation to ensure that future hunters and anglers have the best possible chance to experience these same unique resources. Well, Stevie, what's your hope for the future? I would like more people to embrace the idea that science, that climate and science is real. Because I think that's half the battle. You still have a lot of people fighting against change. And that's because they don't believe in it. And I think if more people would, if more people could believe in it, believe your eyes what's happening. Believe what's happening. And then once you see it, once you open your eyes and you can actually see it, Start making a difference. Start helping. If you fish, if you fish in rivers, go and help. Go help clean the river. Do that. Go help volunteer to help the hatcheries put smolts. Become active. Fight global change. Show up for your your town halls. Talk about salmon. I always do. When I know my senator is coming, I'm always there. And, you know, people are taught you always, if you're lucky enough to be chosen, you talk about what you want. I always talk for salmon. I always stand up and speak for salmon, for salmon and for um, elk and deer. And I speak for the animals that can't speak for themselves. If you fish and you hunt, I think you've got a responsibility to them. You owe it to them to help them. Go do that. Do something. Don't just sit on your hands and don't complain or not believe. Go out. Become a warrior, man. Become a climate warrior. Do everything you can to fight it, to help the species, help the planet. Do something. That's what I want to see. This is Aaron Kindle, and this has been Vanishing Seasons, Climate Chronicles from the Field. Original music written and performed by Keenan Koppel. Audio production by Dave Waldron. Writing by Aaron Kindle. Thanks goes out to Stevie Parsons for sharing her stories and wisdom. Ask yourself today what you can do to help mitigate the impacts of climate change. What you will do to ensure future seasons. How you can demand that our decision makers take action right now to address our changing climate. And then set out tomorrow to get moving. Our sporting lives depend on it. For more information, visit nwf.org backslash game changer. This has been a production of NWF Outdoors. the stories to back it a life to be proud of it's a winchester life yeah baby six eight western oh, i'll be over there baby right there tune in every tuesday at 7 p.m eastern on waypoint tv